Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. A new book called Down Along with That Devil's Bones dedicates a substantial portion of its text to the struggle over MTSU's Forest Hall. We'll have the good fortune to be speaking with the author, Connor Towner Neal, now, and we'll dive into his book subtitled A Reckoning with Monuments, Memory, and the Legacy of White Supremacy after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. An MTSU Honor Society that dedicates itself to service has been awarded its national organization's highest prize. The National Gamma Beta Phi Honor Society has presented MTSU's chapter with its Exemplary Chapter Award. Only 13 of the group's more than 100 chapters were so honored this year. Chapter members donated nearly 1,500 hours of service to organizations like Habitat for Humanity, Meals on Wheels, and Greenhouse Ministries. Chartered in 1964 in Spartanburg, South Carolina, Gamma Beta Phi was founded as an extension of the Beta Club, a high school honor society. The late Aaron Todd, an MTSU professor, served as the local chapter's first faculty advisor and the national group's second executive secretary. And like the rest of the campus community, MTSU's debate team finds itself adapting to different circumstances while coping with a COVID-19 pandemic. The award-winning debaters are competing via cyberspace and skipping the travel expenses. In a debate hosted by the University of Arkansas at Monticello October 2nd and 3rd, the MTSU team members spread out in different rooms in Jones Hall to take on their competitors with laptops. At the Arkansas tournament, Anastasia Ortiz, a junior from Gatlinburg, majoring in biochemistry and political science, and Graham Christoffel, a junior from Morristown, majoring in international relations, reached the round of 16. Christoffel placed fourth in the varsity speakers category. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Connor, welcome to the program. Thank you for being with us. Thanks. It's my pleasure. It's good to be with you. Your book is structured in four parts, Selma, Murfreesboro, Nashville, and Memphis. Why those four cities in particular? Well, so uh, after the Charleston Nine murders in the summer of 2015, as a, a national referendum on Confederate symbols, the Confederate flag, Confederate monuments broke out, uh, I was interested in following stories uh, of campaigns about uh, monuments of Nathan Bedford Forrest specifically. And so uh, as I was looking uh, sort of across the South for stories, uh, for campaigns, and, and there were plenty to choose from, you know, Forrest is, um, is really everywhere. When I, when I talked to Madison Smart Bell, the author of a great novel about Forrest, Devil's Dream, he told me that growing up in Middle Tennessee, Forrest was like the water that you swam in. Um, so there were no shortage of stories. Um, but I chose these four specifically because these were um, these were stories that had uh, protests happening in the moment that I could follow and cover. Uh, so at at Middle Tennessee State, that you know that fall semester, fall of 2015, in the aftermath of the Charleston Nine murders, the uh, students on campus pretty immediately put together a campaign to try and get the school to change the name of Forest Hall. So, you know, that was, that was a story that was getting covered, you know, right as I was just getting started in, in reporting this book. So it seemed like a natural, um, a natural 
story to follow. And it, it turned out to be a really compelling one. Um, I think the, 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 the protest movement that the students put on and, and the way that this debate over forest was framed at MTSU was really fascinating and, and revealing. The section on Murfreesboro recounts the history of MTSU's association with Nathan Bedford Forrest dating back decades, as well as the more recent demonstrations. Were you surprised that after all this time, the Tennessee Historical Commission still ruled against letting MTSU take his name off the ROTC building? I didn't have my hopes up, frankly, um, in, in talking with uh, some of the student activists and with talking with Dr. Frisbee, who, who chaired that task force. No one was really um, too optimistic about that. Um, I, think some, I think some people were surprised that it even got that far, that the, the school would agree to change the name, that the Board of Regents would agree to change the name, that it would even raise to the level of that, that last uh, you know, sign-off that was required. Um, as, as Dr. Frisbee told me that the historical commission is not really set up in such a way to um, approve that the those kinds of changes or removals that the um, state law has vested in them in recent years. Um, so just in, in talking to sources and, and knowing that they they weren't inclined to um, get their hopes up, uh, that led me to not not hold my breath much either. And you know they haven't approved any of them. Twice the city of Memphis applied uh, to be able to m remove their statue, and twice that commission denied them. One of the more fascinating ideological arguments is the one that uh, the student activist Joshua Crutchfield had with himself. Uh, he it was one of the uh, moving forces behind the most recent uh, fight to remove Forrest's name from the ROTC building. Uh, and he had some cognitive dissonance about what's more important, getting rid of the symbolism or enacting policies that lead to change. What's your view? I think they're interconnected. Um, you know, symbols do matter. Uh, they're there for a reason. They're protected um, for a reason. Um, they're, they're reflections of the power structure in, in the place that they, uh, that they appear. Uh, so when you mount a campaign to try and change that symbol or remove that symbol or, or the name or the monument, um, you are, you are taking on uh, a power structure and that, that battle is, can, can be a sort of weather vane to see, you know, who, who's, who's going to win out in that power struggle. So in that way, I think that they matter and they're, they're revealing. Um, but, but that's not to, but, but symbols aren't the only thing that matter. Of course, there are, there are, uh, policies and structures that um, replicate the sorts of injustice or inequity that um, people see reflected in these symbols. So um, I think they're interrelated. As, as one activist told me, uh, you know, symbols matter because they show what's possible. If we can get this statue down, we can get this name changed. Um, it, it's a it's a, a, a moment to, um, you know, move the move forward and, and, and you know, build a coalition to, to keep driving. And, you know, none of the activists that I've, I've talked to in Murfreesboro or, you know, in, in any other section of the book, no one's stopping at symbols. No one thinks it's only about symbols, that whether they're doing pro bono legal work uh, to address some of the racial inequities in our criminal justice system, uh, working to establish uh, a community oversight board for uh, 
police for policing or to uh, resist voter suppression, you know, the, the, the people who are uh, at work on symbolic change are also working on structural change, too. So I think they're all bound up in each other. Um, and this was just sort of one facet of, of a larger um, a larger movement. We'll take a break right here. We'll be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The American Democracy Project is a nonprofit initiative which strives for greater voter registration and civic participation among young people at MTSU and at campuses nationwide. Through encouragement from professors and peers, young adults are shown the value of being more active citizens in their community, their state, and their nation. ADP seeks to nurture programs that raise the campus community's level of engagement with society. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Intercultural and Diversity Affairs Center helps to promote awareness and understanding of the wide variety of cultures represented at MTSU. The center provides information, referrals, and resources. Additionally, IDAC tries to make students from different cultures feel welcome and comfortable on campus so they can have every opportunity to fulfill their academic, social, and personal potential. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Connor Town O'Neill is our guest. He is a writer. He's a producer on the NPR podcast, White Lies, and he's a professor at Auburn University, in addition to the author of Down Along with That Devil's Bones. The one word that keeps recurring, Connor, in the Murfreesboro section is palliative, the word you use to describe why some white Southerners cling to Confederate iconography. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so uh, th- that that term uh, first uh, uh, first came to my attention in reading uh, Dr. Frisbee's uh, really thought-provoking essay about uh, the the historic the history of MTSU's connections with Forrest and with uh, uh, you know other symbols of of the Confederacy in the Old South. Uh, and there's a there's an image in an old yearbook, uh, uh, an old MTS year, MTSU yearbook that uh, includes a uh, illustration of a lynching. And uh, Dr. Frisbee describes that as being uh, a, a palliative for students at the time who were in, during, you know, in, the, in the Great Depression um, and falling on economic hardships. And he writes that images of the Old South served as a sort of uh, a palliative for hard times, sort of you know, balm on, on those sort of economic wounds. But, but the more that I researched and the more that I, I, I reflected on this, it seems like it's not just a palliative for um, economic hard times, but for, for racial ones as well. The, the image in the yearbook is of a Klan lynching. Um, the year after that uh, image is published in the yearbook, there is a racial terror lynching uh, nearby in Middle Tennessee. Um, and, and I think that... Uh, that concept of the palliative, I think, is a really instructive one for thinking about how uh, race operates in this country. Um, if you if you go back and you look at the history of, of colonial America as the uh, these first colonies are being established, there's there are enslaved Africans coming, and there are also indentured uh, European Americans coming, um, both sort of a, a, of a lower class than the the you know, uh, powerful people in the colony. Um, and, and you can see the, the power structure consolidate uh, to discourage those uh, indentured servants and those uh, enslaved Africans from 
coming together and finding solidarity across class lines and instead cleaving them apart and, and offering those, uh, those European Americans uh, a sense of psychological superiority over the enslaved Africans by making them think that they are white and, and affording certain privileges and protecting certain powers in this, in this idea of whiteness that was pretty new at the time. Um, so, so going back and looking at the history of, of race in America, it does seem to be operating on this idea of a palliative. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois called it the wages of whiteness. Um, these these uh, psychological and sometimes economic um, offerings that we, we can give to people, getting to think that they're white and thus superior to other people as a way of protecting the powers that be. Um, so I thought that, that that idea of palliative was really useful um, and, and I wanted to expand that sense of, um, of how it was working in terms of race in America. Uh, I think you anticipated uh, another one of my questions. In, uh, you stated in the Murfreesboro section, this is just a rough paraphrase, whiteness is a device and race is just a construct by which people in power uh, remain in power. And so uh, is there anything else besides what you just said in response to the other question? If you were trying to explain that to someone who believes that his or her history is being wiped away with the loss of Confederate iconography, is that the way you would explain it to them? Or is there something else you'd like to say to that individual to try to help them understand why there is a movement afoot to bring down these Confederate monuments? Yeah, well, I think that um, these monuments aren't history in and of themselves. I mean, they represent figures from our history, but but our history doesn't live in our statues. Um, they're uh, they're put up not to be an archive of the past, but to be uh, a, a way of honoring figures from that past. Um, so I think the the history persists. The history is there, um, and that's not being wiped away. I think when a statue comes down, it's um, it's asking people to to reconsider, you know, who's deserving of being remembered, who's deserving of being honored, and who are we forgetting when we honor those people. Um, and and I think what's happening right now is um, uh, a referendum on that, asking us to uh, question whether the people that for centuries we've been taught to honor as um, you know, the, the, the heroes of America, but because that has come so often at the expense of um, people of color, whether that be through enslavement, through Jim Crow, um, through, you know, any, any number of um, systems of exploitation in the economy, whether that be excluding black soldiers from the GI Bill, excluding black uh, homeowners from FHA loans, um, you know, all of these systems are, are skewed towards, um, towards white Americans. And, and, and we, we might be participating in that system only passively, um, but we're still benefiting from it. And, and I think what's happening right now is that we're being asked to account for that. We're being asked to be responsible to our past, a past that has privileged white people over people of color. Um, and I think that that's, a, that's an important uh, that's an important referendum that's taking place. It's an urgent referendum that's taking place. And I would ask those people who would be skeptical of it to, um, to listen and to, to not be so defensive. Because I think that that, I mean, I, I, I find myself being defensive in moments like this where, I, where I'm, I'm being challenged. Um, I was challenged throughout the, the process of reporting and writing this book because, of course, we want to feel like 
we have a, a history that we can be proud of. It's what American exceptionalism teaches us, that we come from the greatest country in the world and we have all the reasons to be proud of that past. Um, but I think it's worth hearing out challenges to that point of view um, and people asking us to be accountable to the ways in which um, there's been these historic injuries and, and there's been uh, exploitation and, and violence uh, to to create the, the systems that, that benefit us. I think that's worth I think that's worth listening to. It's time to take another break. We'll be right back. This is MTSU on the record. Tennessee's farm families contribute to our state's economy, nutrition, and culture. The Tennessee Century Farms Program at MTSU's Center for Historic Preservation acknowledges farms that have been in the same family at least 100 years. To date, the program has certified more than 1,500 farms. There's no cost to nominate a farm or be part of the program. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Experiential Learning Scholars Program at MTSU gives students a chance to go outside the classroom and obtain hands-on experience in their chosen fields of study. They'll have the opportunity to give something back to the community through service learning as they gain acceptance for graduate study. Students should be able to select EXL-designated courses from major requirements and general studies requirements to complete the 16 to 18 hours of EXL coursework. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Our guest is Connor Town O'Neill, uh, who is the author of uh, Down Along with That Devil's Bones. What do you think, Connor, of the statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest that overlooks the interstate in Nashville? It scares me. <laughs> it's yeah, it's scary. It's it's both sort of scary and grotesque, but also kind of comical and cartoonish. I mean, it is really something. It is um I call it, you know, the the ugliest Confederate monument, um which probably puts it in the running for ug ugliest monument of all time too. It resists any any you know, any words to describe it. I, you know, comedians, late night talk show hosts have, have had their cracks at it over the years. And I don't think anyone has, has quite been able to, to come up with a description that is uh, able to capture all of its ugliness and cartoonishness. It's the eyes. It's something about the eyes. Mm -hmm. They're googly eyes. It, it's, you know, it's almost like he uh, is uh, an extra in an episode of The Twilight Zone. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. I, you know, I was, I wasn't able to confirm this. Um, but when I interviewed the guy who owns that land, the, who's a friend of the sculptor, um, he told me that the, the eyes come from buttons on uh, the sculptor's wife's dress and that he swears that at, at dusk he can see them glow. What goes through your mind as you see some Confederate monuments being torn down across the country? I, I see these as the, a gathering force that the people in that community have, have had it and are done asking. I think in the first few years of this referendum on, on Confederate statues, activists and, and protesters were willing to play by the rules, as it were, to go through the established channels to appeal to people on city council, mayors, state senators, state historical commissions. They really wanted to proceed as the way allows and to, you know, do it do it the above board way to get approval to do it. And I think what we're seeing now is that people are just done asking because they, they played by the rules and a lot of those statues stayed up uh, or they had to find loopholes in the laws to take them down. And I think at this point, people are done asking. As Joshua Crutchfield, student activist who uh, was involved in the campaign here at MTSU, as he put it, we don't think racism should be debated at this point. They think it's a sort of bad faith 
argument to have, and it's not an argument worth having at this point. I can't think of a single building on the MTSU campus that is named for someone unassociated with the university, except Forest Hall. McWhorter and Bragg were politicians that supported the university. Cope, Scarlett, and Ingram are former presidents of the university. Walker was a former president of the university. Nathan Bedford Forrest died before the university was even created. Did you interview anybody who tried to justify or rationalize or explain the naming of the ROTC building as Forest Hall? One of the explanations that I heard is that it, it's actually for that very reason that it's not, it's a, it's someone who's not uh, directly associated with the university. And instead, some people understand the naming of Forest Hall and the connection between MTSU and Forest as a, an effort to connect, to connect the university to the town. Forest, as one supporter of, uh, of keeping the name of Forest Hall, explained to me, Forest is Tennessee's sort of legendary soldier. And in Murfreesboro and in Middle Tennessee more broadly, Forest is really a, a, a folk hero to some. And they understand and appreciate the, the school's willingness to, to try and make that connection from the school to the town. It, because that tension, I think you see it in a lot of college towns, that what they call the sort of town versus gown disconnect that there's there are the people who are affiliated with the school and they don't have a lot of interaction with or, or reasons to sort of intermingle with the, the people who live in the and live in the town that aren't affiliated with the university. So it was a way of connecting the town to, to the school. I mean, I think there's more to it than that, but I think that, that that's one of the explanations that I've heard. Another one, a more sort of the mythic connection is that the raid that Forrest led in Murfreesboro during the Civil War saved several uh, prominent members of town whose descendants then gave land to the university. And so there's a, you know, a sort of symbolic logic at work there that goes, you know, no Forrest, no MTSU. And again, that's sort of the legend that I heard from a couple of people. So, so yeah, there are, there are rationales to, to explain it. But I think it's also worth looking at the context of when the school named Forest Hall, Forest Hall in the late late 50s, after Brown v. Board, in the, the early years of the civil rights movement, you see across the South a reemergence of Confederate symbols, buildings being named after Confederate soldiers. In the years before that, it was really hard to come by even a Confederate flag. They had to be special ordered from the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And then the 50s come and the civil rights movement starts, and all of a sudden there's a profusion of Confederate symbolism and specifically names of Confederate leaders at schools. You know, there's so many high schools named after Lee or Forrest. And that is the historical moment that Forrest Hall is named Forrest Hall. It would be another four years before MTSU was even willing to integrate. That's important context for understanding how Forrest Hall gets its name too. Is the COVID-19 pandemic making it easier or more difficult for people to get their points across when it comes to this subject? On the one hand, you see people out demonstrating. Uh, some have their masks on and some don't. So they're literally sort of risking their lives, if not with the police themselves, then certainly with the disease. On the other hand, while you and I are talking uh, on the computer via video conferencing, there's nothing like being in person in front of a classroom or an amphitheater full of people 
to be impressive. Is that some sort of a trade-off there? What do you think? Uh, I'm with you. There's nothing that can replace in-person interaction. I would love to be sitting across from you at a table and having this conversation, of course. And likewise, in teaching, it's just so much better to do face-to-face. But you're right. Seeing people still be willing to to take to the streets, to gather, to make their voices heard on issues of racial justice, I think is important to read in the context of the pandemic. Uh, One, because it, it underscores the urgency that this is literally life and death. And we should read these massive protests. I mean, what the New York Times has followed as one of the biggest protest movements in the history of the country. For that to happen in a moment where you're risking life and limb to to be out there, I think only underscores the urgency of of this movement. And two, I think the the pandemic and the racial disparities in terms of, of who is succumbing to to the coronavirus, I think points up you know systemic issues of inequity in our healthcare system. Who has access to it? Who has access to good coverage? All of these sort of break down along racial lines. So all all the more to underscore the point that there's a real sort of reckoning about race that's happening in this moment that's happening in the context of the pandemic, but also being uh, highlighted by the disparate effects of the pandemic. When I lived in Montgomery, Alabama, there were a bunch of people who would get together and have lunch once a month. I forget what they called themselves, but the idea was to have white people and black people actually sit down and have a meal together and get to know each other. And in that way, they would facilitate better race relations. Now we have a pandemic, we're supposed to be exercising social distancing. And I can't help but think that you really don't get to know somebody who is outside your own sphere of experience, unless you can sit down with them, have a meal, have a drink, go to the park or engage in some sort of social activity together. And that, that's what I'm thinking of as one of the real shames of this situation, especially now that Black Lives Matter is really forcing the issue and bringing all of this to a head. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And it is, you know, it is a, a real, it's a shame that, that we are so sequestered right now, quarantined right now because of the pandemic. That's an interesting story that you tell about the the lunch in Montgomery. But it, I think that, that that tells us something too, that you have to sort of go out just the way that we're sort of siloed and segregated, if not by law, then sort of just, you know, by choice. Americans live such segregated lives and, and siloed lives politically. Like we, we all live inside of our sort of bubbles, uh, even before the pandemic, mostly only talking with people who share our political points of view and and who often are the, the same race as we are. But you're right. I think those 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 dialogues are incredibly important. And it's a shame that in a moment where more and more Americans uh, appear to be thinking more directly and more pointedly about race and inequality in this country that, that we can't gather together. The book is called Down Along with That Devil's Bones, subtitled A Reckoning with Monuments, Memory, and the Legacy of White Supremacy. Connor Town O'Neill is the author. Connor, it's been fascinating. Thank you for being our guest on MTSU on the record. My pleasure. It's good to be with you. We'll be right back. The Tennessee Employment Relations Research Association, or TERRA, gives labor relations specialists and academics a chance to share their views and their data. TERRA wants academics and other interested in human resources and industrial relations to work together at meetings and conferences to strengthen the workplace. Many MTSU faculty belong to TERRA, which has members in 20 states and 7 nations. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Middle Tennessee Writing Project is a program that fosters the effective teaching of writing to students in kindergarten through high school. The project hosts annual summer institutes where teacher participants teach and learn from each other effective techniques of teaching writing. In addition, the project sponsors summer writers camps for youngsters. 
MTSU is one of 185 sites of the National Writing Project and one of only two in Tennessee. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Jimmy Hart has the middle moment. Six students from the MTSU Jones College of Business recently submitted their video presentation for judging in this year's National College Fed Challenge. Oddly enough, it was the coronavirus pandemic which moved the challenge to a virtual format that opened the door for MTSU to enter the competition for the first time. Professors Stuart Fowler and Ann Anderson have co-taught the class this semester, coaching the student team as they collaborated over Zoom to develop a monetary policy presentation. Here's Fowler. Since it's a team, uh, Dr. Anderson and I were able to serve different roles for the team. My role was originally to give them the background information, the theory that they could then apply. Mm -hmm. And then Dr. Anderson did a great job on helping them with that theory to think about the issues that are going on today. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.